Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the 13th chapter. <clears throat> We're really going to be uh, looking at, at, by way of an overview of two chapters here in Acts, uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14, but I want to, uh, for us to read together the beginning of chapter 13 and the end of chapter 14. It will make sense, I trust, when we uh, read through this and look at it together. So hear God's word as we read, first of all, in Acts 13, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3, and then we'll go to chapter 14 and read verses 24 through 28. <clears throat> now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, if you'll turn to chapter 14, and we'll look, I'll continue reading beginning at verse 24 of chapter 14. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. The missions committee invited me to bring a message here at the beginning of missions month concerning our part in supporting our missionaries. That took some doing for me to figure out what the Lord wanted me to say. <clears throat> this morning, my daughter sent a text to Beth and myself and said that uh, their church, which is a large PCA church in Dallas, their church uh, was having a guest preacher today named Kevin DeYoung. Many of you recognize that name. Uh, he's a PCA minister in Charlotte, North Carolina, and has written some wonderful books that are so helpful uh, to followers of Jesus that like we are. And uh, he's a good preacher, I'm sure, too. He pastors the Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. <clears throat> I told my daughter, well, y'all are going to have Kevin DeYoung, but my church gets me. <laughs> in spite of that fact, I have been prayerfully considering what the Lord would have me to say today, and this is where the Lord has led me. So I want us to think about the fact that today is Missions Month 
the whole month of February. We begin the month as we're doing today uh, by turning our attention to mission work and how that mission work takes place, how it transpires, the nuts and bolts things of, of what has to be done for missionaries to be missionaries and to do the things God has called them to do. And what I want you to notice, and it's very simple in your outline uh, that you see in the bulletin, I want you to notice the importance of these three principles that we see laid out in this very first missionary trip or journey that disciples of Christ did and carried out from a home, the home church, what amounted to the home church in the city of Antioch. Today is a good day to remind ourselves of why missions is important in a church, a congregation. And when I say missions, I mean world missions, not just what we might call home missions, seeking to bring the gospel to our own community and our own country. That's a separate thing, which I'll mention a little later on this morning. But what we're talking about right now is taking the gospel to other nations, to people in different cultures than what we have here in the United States of America. Acts 13 and 14 reports from Luke some of the very first missionaries of the Christian church and how they carried out their mission and how churches can do the same thing today. So here we go. Number one, the church sends missionaries to proclaim Christ to the nations. This is sort of a missions 101 here because we're looking at the first missionary enterprise in the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shortly after his ascension and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church so that they were empowered to fulfill the Great Commission to take the gospel to all nations. Who does the sending? If the church sends missionaries to proclaim Christ to the nations, who does the sending? Well, there's a sense in which we can say it's the Lord who does the sending. And that's what happens here in the first part of chapter 13, because we read there that the Lord ministered or spoke to two people in particular about going. In verse two, we read, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Jesus named names. And notice that by the way that's written, that when Jesus said, set them apart to the work that I have called them to, to which I have called them, that means that the Lord has already put it in the hearts of Paul, still known as Saul at this point, and Barnabas. He had already begun ministering or speaking and, and leading these men. These men were prophets and they were able to receive God's word through the Holy Spirit. They were calling, God was calling them to go. And then he says the church needs to, to be bound together with these two men and the church as a whole there needs to send these men out. 
That's a very practical and important thing because here's a group of five leaders that are mentioned by name in these uh, first two verses of chapter 13. And of those five, two of them are sort of pulled out of the group and even more pulled out of the church as a whole and called to be uh, missionaries to where God will send them. The entire church is involved here. And the whole congregation is going to be involved in this ministry. And so the Lord ultimately calls missionaries to serve, but it all takes place by means of the church, the disciples of Christ, the followers of Jesus. And Antioch was home base. We think of Jerusalem as being a key center for the spreading of the gospel, and that is certainly true. But as a little time had gone by, Antioch was a big city. Big city. It would have been a big city by Mississippi standards anyway. Several hundred thousand people. And Paul was uh, there, and Barnabas was there, and these other men were there, and the Lord is saying to them, this church needs to send these men out. Sending. When we think about those who were sent, think about Saul and Barnabas. Saul, he's called Saul at this point because it hadn't been long since he had been converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember how he was going on a mission to, to ruin, if not kill, Christians because he was a Jew and he had... Uh, he was a Pharisee and he saw Christians as the enemies of the Jews because they did not believe that the Christ had come. And when Saul was going to, to do this in Damascus, when he was going to persecute Christians, the Lord figuratively and probably literally knocked him off his horse. Saul, Saul, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Then Saul came to realize Jesus, Jesus is not just somebody that Christians like to talk about. He is real and he is powerful and he is God. And so Saul was powerfully brought to faith in Christ in a very dramatic way. Once that happened, he was so changed that he ended up becoming a leader in the early Christian church. Paul, and you'll see in chapter 13, if you kept reading, we left out the middle part. I'll mention that in a minute. <clears throat> His name changes right in the middle of the narrative of how these missionaries went about their work. John Stott says, these five men that are mentioned here in these first few verses, they've all got different backgrounds. Let me, let me back up and mention that uh, by name. You had Saul, you had Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement, and that's exactly the kind of man he was. He went around uh, building people up, and uh, that was just his gift. Uh, so he was going to be a great complement to what Paul would do. And I say Paul, and, I'm, and Saul and Paul are the same person, so please don't get confused more than you may already be. <laughs> and 
And then they mention another man named Simeon who was called Niger. The word Niger means black. And it really, we're really not sure whether that referred to the color of his skin or the color of his hair or what it meant. But you and I know that that name is still uh, used in uh, one of the nations of Africa, Niger. So there's another man, but he's from another area, another part of, of the world. And then Lucius from Cyrene. Cyrene was Northern Africa what today would be Libya. And then the fifth member of the team was Manaean, who had a connection with Herod, who was the Roman tetrarch in Palestine, one of the Herods in the, in the Herodian dynasty. All right, why do I mention all that? I mention it to tell you what John Stott wrote about these five men, an interesting thing. John Stott is a... a He's in heaven now, but he was a very influential minister from London, England. And writing on this passage, he said, these five men symbolized the ethnic and cultural diversity of Antioch. And you know, that also symbolizes the same diversity in the worldwide Christian church today. The Christian church has grown unbelievably since what we read a while ago in Acts 13 and 14 when it was just getting started. Now, how are these men sent out? Verses two and three provides us the answer. It begins with a divine call from the Lord, as I said a moment ago, specifically the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in his work in, this, in the church in Acts is prominent. God is working through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the church to do the work that God had called the church to do. And so we had that, but we also have the spirit called the other men in the church. Uh, the church is, notes, notices that the spirit has called these two men specifically to be sent out. And they were worshiping the Lord and fasting when this happened. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm in the, involved with the church and the church is focusing on prayer and fasting because of their desire to be used of God to spread the good news of Jesus wherever the Lord wants them to go, you can be pretty sure <laughs> that if you're in that kind of mode, prayer, fasting even, and, and seeking the Lord through worship together, God is going to do something. How are they sent? Note that the people were worshiping the Lord and fasting when this happened, meaning that Saul and Barnabas were set apart as a result of that. It says they were set apart. And they laid their hands on them and sent them off, verse 3. To be set apart, I guess a good word for that would be consecrated. They were called out, literally and spiritually, called out from the church. Go out from the church and take the message of Christ that we have already heard so that others may hear and find eternal life in Jesus if they come to believe the gospel message that they will send. 
It's been well said that before the Lord begins to do a great, a great work, he sets his people praying. Let me say that again. Before the Lord seeks to do a great work, he sets his people praying. The more we emphasize prayer, I don't think we can emphasize it too much, do you? The more we emphasize prayer and set ourselves to prayer to do what God wants this church to do, then we know that he is going to honor that and bless that in some way. All the great revivals through the history of the Christian church have come about because the Lord had moved prior to that revival. He had moved the hearts of many to start praying for revival in the church. The church, you know, it's, it's kind of like you and I when we, when we start neglecting our bodies and stop eating and drinking the way we ought to and we start losing steam. You know, we start getting weaker. We start neglecting things. Well, the church is that way, in a spiritual way. The church sometimes can become, uh, not lifeless, but it can become sort of stagnant and stale. It may not be obvious to many people because, hey, people are coming to church, we're doing things, you know, we're busy and all that. But we can make all of this routine, can't we? Our hearts have got to be in what we do as the people of God. What good are we going to be if our hearts are not in it? And if the Lord is not stirring our hearts because we want to glorify him, we want the whole world to know how wonderful life is in Jesus. I really appreciate what Ed had to sing a while ago. Jesus said, you are the light of the world, only that meaning that the light of Christ is in the people of Christ and we can take that light and shine it in this very dark world. This world is in spiritual darkness. And it seems to be getting darker, doesn't it? Well, there's something we can do about that. It's something the Christian church could do about it. And that's to send people out with the gospel. Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He's speaking to his disciples. You and I are followers of Jesus. We're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are truly born again and have faith in him, and we have a mission. And all of us can fulfill that mission. I'm going to mention specific ways that we can fulfill that mission in a few minutes. This is God's way to begin any missionary endeavor, is to call missionaries by means of the church to be sent out to wherever God would have them to go. Sent. Missionaries are sent. Number two, missionaries then go. They go with God's blessings to fulfill their mission. Now, everything that we didn't read today in the rest of chapter 13 and chapter 14 is sort of the middle of the sandwich. This is the account Luke gives us 
of the missionaries from Antioch, where they went, what they did, and what the results were. And I encourage you to read those verses. I'm not taking the time to go into that because that's really beyond the, what I'm trying to accomplish today. But I'll tell you, it's an exciting account. All kinds of interesting things happened. How will these missionaries, however, be supported? How did it happen here? Well, it should be obvious that prayer was going to be a major part of how these missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, would be supported. Prayer was going to be offered all the time that they were gone. They, they were gone at least six months. We don't know exactly how long. Some say uh, closer to two years. However long it was, they weren't going to be able to do that uh, without support, financial support, help. Man does not live by bread alone, yes, but man still needs bread. And missionaries still need to buy groceries. I don't think Paul could have made it six months without being fed. Well, where is that coming from? They've gave, given up whatever work they were involved in and devoted themselves completely, you might say full time, to missionary endeavors. Paul discusses the need for financial support in several places, as does the Apostle John. Now, I don't want to, I'm not going to give you a, a whole bunch of scripture passages to look at right now, but I do want you to turn to these uh, relevant passages right now because this is what we are talking about today is the need for us to support our missionaries. I know some of you are saying, I already know that. I don't need to hear it again. You're going to hear it anyway, okay? And some of us may be hearing this for the first time or thinking about it for the first time. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks here about supporting his ministry and others' ministries as well, not just his. Look at verse 3, and I'm going to read on down for a little ways. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's another name for Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without giving some of the milk, getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because we, the plowman, should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, 
but we endure anything rather than put, on, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. And here's the, the clinching verse. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Then Paul gives a personal example in the book of Philippians. This is the only other one I want you to turn to is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul here is expressing his gratitude to the Philippian church, the church in Philippi, for supporting him, for sending gifts to him, to help him. And right at the beginning of this letter, he talks about it. Verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. That's an important word. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Reading on down through verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And toward the end of Philippians he again mentions this in chapter 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know, yourselves know, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then one other verse, you don't have to turn to it, but uh, there's one other verse in 3 John, John's third letter, where he says this in verses five through eight. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These are, this is biblical teaching on how missionaries are supported. They're supported by churches. Third thing I want you to notice is that, sorry, uh, we're talking about the second thing. I want you to notice that they go with God's blessings. The blessings of God uh, outlined in the parts of chapters 13 and 14 that we did not read, they went out on their mission. God led them to go where they went. They went to Crete first, then they hopped over to uh, what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor, and went to several churches, or several places, cities in, in uh, different parts of Asia Minor. As they went, they preached the gospel. The goal of mission is to bring the gospel to people and to plant churches, to start churches. As people come to faith in Christ, 
to get them together, to organize them, to have leadership for them, and to be, let them begin to worship on their own and become, in turn, become those who send the gospel out from where they are. And that's what this was all about. And I said earlier, you can read those verses in chapters 13 and 14, and you will not be bored. The messages spoken by Saul and Barnabas as they went from city to city in Asia Minor, speaking to all the people and offering Christ to them. It was, it, it was not, um, it was not boring. There were different kinds of responses to their mission. Some people believed in the gospel message and they came to faith in Christ and they became a part of what was going to be a church in each of these towns that they went to. Some people weren't too sure. They were interested, but time would tell whether they actually came to Christ or not. Others disbelieved, and some of them in every place they went persecuted Paul and Barnabas. In fact, to give you one example that you can read about there, Paul was stoned and left to die, drug out of the city, stoned and left there to die. But God didn't let him die. He was able to rally and continue the ministry. They were doing the mission work that God gave them. This is the mission that continues to this very day, to the ends of the earth. The key verse in Acts, many of you memorized it, Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Similar to what Jesus said in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, all that God has given us. And Jesus said to make disciples of all the nations, missions. That's why we're emphasizing missions in February of 2024. God is not going to change hearts if the gospel is not brought to the world. We see the world today in a sad condition Wars, famine, conflicts, stealing, corruption, on and on we could go, couldn't we? What's going to change it? Well, I can tell you this, government can only do so much, and that would be when government's really doing its job. But they can't change hearts. Only the sovereign power and grace of a loving father in heaven and the Christ who's the eternal son of God who came into this world and obeyed God's will perfectly, never breaking the law so that he could be a, a suitable sacrifice to die in our place and pay the penalty of our sins so that if we put our trust and hope in Jesus, we are declared righteous in his sight. All our sins are forgiven. And we have now the power of that same Holy Spirit that 
book of Acts is talking about to live a life of obedience and love and faithfulness because Jesus came and changed our hearts. That's the message that they were preaching. If you want to know what to preach, what people should preach, read Acts. They preach the gospel. And then they teach them the word of God after they've done that. So the missionaries go with God's blessing, and obviously God is blessing what Paul and Barnabas were doing. There are individuals and churches that engage in other forms of missions to foreign lands, however, and I use the word missions sort of lightly here, they engage in missions of providing water or medical services, uh, things like that, which are good things, but that is not the whole story of what missions should be about for the Christian church. Don't leave the gospel out. Go to other places and, and bring the gospel to people and minister to their physical and material needs and other needs. Sure, that's a part of it. But don't leave the gospel out. And that's why the church needs to make sure that we are doing what the Lord would have us to do. The last thing I want you to mention here, I want you to hear today, is that the missionaries report to the sending church on what God did to bless their gospel labors. And that's where chapter 14 comes in at the end of the chapter, in verses 24 through 28. The missionaries returned to Antioch to provide those who sent them what had taken place over the time period that they had been away. Now this is a critical component of the faithful ministry efforts. Of course, the church would be very interested in learning what had happened. How did it go? Notice that the entire church gathered to hear them, as verse 27 tells us. And they probably did what they, uh, the whole church probably came together just like they did at the beginning uh, of the passage we read in chapter 13. The whole church is involved here, beginning and at the end. So an important principle is the importance of accountability in missionary endeavors. We don't just write checks and say, okay, I hope the Lord blesses. I don't know what you're gonna do and may never see you again, but Lord bless you. Well, you could do that, but does it seem to be the way it should be done? We need to realize that the missionaries need to come back and they need to say, here's what God did. It may have had some terrible things that happened, and there were some bad things. But they need to hear the story and what's going on and how God is using them. Did the missionaries accomplish what they were sent out to do? The church would like to know that. What did God do as they preached Christ to the people in these cities? We receive reports regularly from our missionaries, don't we? And those reports are encouraging to us. We have missionaries that we support and we do whatever we can as often as we can to get them here so that they can stand before us and tell us what's been going on in their work. And not only that, but they send us letters and they communicate with us while they're still on the field. 
Paul and Barnabas explained the strategic success of their journey in verse 27. A huge change had occurred. Look at what it says in Acts 14, 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Remember, when the gospel first started going out, it was confined mostly to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the areas that were closest to Jerusalem that was predominantly Jewish. But God didn't want to stop there. He wants the gospel to go to all the nations, to make disciples of all nations. And so it's like throwing a stone in the, in the lake, you know, it, this starts radiating out from Jerusalem, from Antioch, and going farther and farther out into the world to the Roman, the city of Rome itself, which was kind of the capital of the world at that time. And look, it's still going. Think of all the countries the gospel has gone to. Evangelism explosion. A gospel ministry started by one of our churches in, in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Carl Ridge Presbyterian Church. Evangelism explosion has been operating in every country in the world for a number of years now. The gospel is getting out there, but there's still so much to do. So much to do. So we continue the work. The Lord opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, meaning people that weren't Jewish. And everybody needs to hear this story. Everybody needs to know that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And the gospel wants, God wants the gospel offered to everybody so that anyone can come to faith in him through the teaching and preaching of the gospel by people that God sends out. Well, enough of that. Let me close with two things here, two takeaways, if you will, about how this affects us. Number one, it is our biblical duty to send missionaries with the gospel to other people groups where there is no credible gospel witness. That's a lot to think about. It's our biblical duty because the scriptures tell us to do this. Jesus tells us to do this. We are to send missionaries. Romans 10 talks about how will they hear the gospel if no one goes there to preach the gospel to them. They've got to be sent, Romans 10 tells us. It's the only way that people will come to know Christ. They've got to hear the message in order to believe it. And so we're about that work. This is a God-ordained purpose for every congregation of Jesus' church. Not every church is taking this as seriously as they should. Some probably not at all. But we can and we must do that. It's our biblical duty. How well is Main Street doing in this regard? Are we being good stewards of the resources that God has provided us so that the Great Commission can be fulfilled. This needs to be right at the top of our priority list as a Christian church. We need to be doing what God tells us to do. And I'm not saying we're not. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying this is what we 
need to do at whatever point we are in our faithfulness to doing this. We need to keep working towards that so that the Great Commission will ultimately be completed and our Lord Jesus will come back. We need to send, but we also need to support. That's the other thing. There's financial support that is needed in our missionaries' lives. We do need to support them by prayer. We do need to support them financially. We can't just say, you know, go brother, bless you. I hope you don't starve to death. No, we need to back it up, back up our prayers with physical financial support. And we're doing that. But my challenge is this. There's something that tends to happen, I think with all of us, if I find what I'm looking for here, there's something that tends to happen when we give to the church and we find out what the church as a whole is doing. If you look at your bulletin, you'll see that there's three levels of giving there. And uh, the levels of giving are very important for us. $50,000 in our faith promise goals will cover our operational funding goal for a year, for this year. And we've been pretty close to meeting that recently. But you know, I think we have a tendency to say, okay, well, we've, we've done the minimum, so everything's good. We need to think bigger than that. God may be wanting you to do more than you even think you can do in terms of your supporting our missionaries so that we can support more, provide more support for them if they need more or for maybe other missionaries besides the ones we're already supporting. That's why you kick it up $5,000 and it's called the praise funding goal. We'll praise the Lord together if we're able to even give more. Kick it up $5,000 more, $60,000. We'll all come together and in, in a great Presbyterian tradition, we'll all say hallelujah together, right? Some people will say, huh, Presbyterians don't do stuff like that. Why not? So when you take your missionary card, here's what I want you to do. And I, I was not told to say these things, so you can blame all this on me. Go back to the table back there in the back of the, the chapel area, and you'll find uh, an explanation of every missionary, even got their pictures on it. Uh, and you can remind yourself of what they're doing. Some of them have been here. All of them have been here at some point or another. Some of them will be here for our conference at the end of this month. And then if you'll take the green card, which is where you can express your financial support for our missionaries. Some of you are already doing that, wonderful. Some of you may be considering doing that now. I'd like all of you who are, are members or who are serious about serving in this church, I'd like for all of you to prayerfully consider what can I do to trust God for support of our missionaries with funds that I don't know where they're going to come from. That's why we call it faith promise. And this is a separate part of our finances as a church. 
All of our operational expenses and local ministries, all of that is under our general budget. But separate from that is our world missions budget, which is dependent on us providing funds above and beyond our regular tithes and offerings. You can read more information about that uh, using the material that's available on the tables. I won't say more than that, but I do want to remind you that this is something we can all literally invest in. And when we do, we need to say we're going to support these people and we're going to pray for them regularly that God would bless their ministries. And we want to hear from them as often as we can, and we do. But there's one other thing that you can do in terms of being involved, personally involved in missions. You can go. You can be a missionary. Anybody can. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to go to college. You don't have to have any kind of special uh, education or special abilities. You can go. And so what I'm saying is, how about a mission trip? I know there's some people interested in doing that. Aaron and I are already talking about what we might do, where we might go. We want to know if you're interested, so you let us know. I know that I've taken way too much time. Please forgive me. Let's look to the Lord as we thank him that he gives us wisdom in his word about how the missionary enterprise works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all you've done for us in rescuing us from our sin, our guilt, freely forgiving us because Christ dealt with our sins once and for all on the cross. And now, Lord, we who trust in him alone for salvation and not in ourselves, we have the joy of living for Christ and sharing the love of Christ with the world. Help us, Lord, to be world-minded believers. Expand our scope and enable us to even see great, greater things done than already you are doing through the ones that we are supporting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.